You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. I keep having a recurring conversation with a number of business leaders, and it can be a pretty disappointing conversation to them. We'll talk about their business and how it's positioned and what attributes they've defined to help it stand out from others. When they talk about how they're differentiated and how they stand out, they'll say things like, oh, we provide reliable service, or we deliver our product on time, or we deliver a consistent experience, or our employees are courteous to our customers. Now, here's what's difficult and what a lot of leaders don't want to hear. None of those attributes will help differentiate you. None. In fact, those are just minimum requirements that your customers expect of you. That's like your employees saying they expect a paycheck, a pay raise, and a bonus simply for showing up to work on time and nothing else. Oh, no. They've got to do more, a lot more, and so do you. So if you're not already there today, you've got to figure out exactly how you can start meeting your customers' minimum requirements. On top of all that, then you need to figure out what customers expect from you beyond just minimum requirements and beyond just minimum convenience. And then figure out how you can successfully deliver that so you can differentiate and brand out from the crowd. You have to figure out exactly when exactly where, and exactly how you can play an active role in your customers' lives. The role that they need you to play, not simply the role that you want to play. I don't know about you, but I'm overwhelmed just thinking about all that. And that's why I'm glad to talk with Stephen Van Bellicam this week. Stephen is one of the top customer experience thought leaders in the world, and he's the best-selling author of multiple books, including his latest, The Offer You Can't Refuse, where he teaches how businesses of any size can brand out from the crowd and deliver better experiences through customer-centric thinking and being a partner in their customers' lives. Hey, Forbes named The Offer You Can't Refuse as one of its 10 must-read books in 2020, so you know that's good. And I'm pretty excited that this was my first overseas podcast interview. Stephen's located in Belgium. So here it is, my interview with Stephen Van Belligam. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good, Matt. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. And, you know, I'm tuning in here from Nashville, but you're all the way in Belgium. This, this, this is fun. That's right. That's right. I live in Europe, in Belgium, very close to Bruges, a small, very beautiful town over here. 
I love Bruges. It's been 20 years. I visited Bruges 20 years ago. Oh, wow. That's cool. And and you, did you enjoy it? Oh, absolutely. Great food, uh, great drinks, great everything mm -hmm. there. Cool. Good. Glad you had a good time. Stephen, I have enjoyed getting to know you um, and getting to know your work the past few weeks. And I love your focus on customer experience. But tell me, how did you get started in pursuing your focus in customer experience? Well, um, to be honest, I think it, it, it's because of my childhood. My parents had a, a small photography store here in Belgium. And, um, you know, we were in the store every single day. I was playing there when I was a child. I was playing with my computer when I was a teenager. And I was, I was part of the excitement and the energy of their store. And back then, I didn't realize it. But if I look back now, my, my parents were really obsessed with customers. They were always talking about, uh, you know, when we were having lunch, they were talking about how they could improve their service, what, what kind of new activations they could do. And I was part of those discussions, and I thought that was normal. And um, later on, when I, when I started working and, and when I met, you know, professional companies, I discovered that actually my parents were really, really good in what they did. And, and I think I got that into my, injected into my genes. And then uh, a second coincidence that I had that I'm very thankful for is that I had relatives living in the Bay Area in California. Um, my, my aunt and my uncle lived there. So actually my dad's sister married with the son of the, the family where she stayed when she went to school in California and they're still happily married. And when I was a teenager, I went, I went there and I visit them every summer. And, and there I discovered the positive energy of Silicon Valley and, and the, the possibilities of technology. And, and those are two angles of my childhood that are still reflected in my work today. I'm still obsessed with customers and I really love the opportunity that technology brings to, to improve your, your relationship. So I think it all started back then. That's fascinating, especially to think about a retail photography shop. I'm, I'm assuming this is uh, 30 plus years ago at least. And, and to have that customer-centric focus. Listening to hear you talk about that, it sounds like you've got that customer-centric foundation and then were introduced to that uh, technology foundation. And I think that that's really, really rare today. Um, a lot of people seem tend to focus on technology and focus on the shiny objects and then have to come back and figure out, oh, how do we bring customers into our focus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, if, if you look online and if you see what people are writing, they, they get really excited about the toys and about the technology. And, and so do I. Um, but a lot of people forget that you, you don't need to use technology for the sake of technology. You need to make something that brings value to customers. I, I love one of the quotes of Larry Page, the founder of Google in this field. He's like, guys, let's look at the world. I mean, we, we have Elon Musk and Elon Musk is launching rockets every two weeks with, with SpaceX. <laughs> and then he's like releasing satellites like 50 at a time. And then that rocket virtually comes back to the planet and it lands on a floating device in the middle of the ocean. We can do that as humans. And then the quote follows. Then he says, but making a toaster that doesn't burn toast seems to be extremely difficult. Why do we still have toasters that burn toast? 
And then you have people that react to him and say, yeah, but uh, Mr. Page, we have smart toasters now. And then he says, yeah, but what does a smart toaster do? Well, it sends you a text message when the toast is ready. And then when I hear that story, I'm like, okay, so then you get a text message that's probably in case for in case you have forgotten what happened with that piece of bread in those 30 seconds. Ah, and then you get a text message and then you're like, ah, yeah, I forgot. It's still in the toaster. And then you turn around and you see burned toast. So nobody in the world is waiting for a smart toaster. Right. We just need a toaster that brings value to customers. And if you create a smart toaster, basically what you're doing is developing the internet of stupid things. It's just <laughs> something that we do because we can do it, but there's not a single human on the planet who needs a smart toaster. And I, I believe in the combination of the two. Let, let's look for the opportunities of the technology, but let's do it in a way that it still brings value to the user. Right. You know, And my kids this past year have really gotten into Jurassic Park and all the Jurassic Park <laughs> movies. And I love... Um, Professor Ian Malcolm's line in there, and I may not get it right here, but he, he says they were so preoccupied on whether or not they could that they didn't stop and think whether they should. Exactly. And I think a lot of that applies to so many companies today and what they're trying to throw into their customer experience mix. You know, in, instead of focusing on can we include this feature, think about well, what should we be doing? Yeah, and, and this this goes beyond customer experience. Uh, it's it's also about the the ethics. I think if you want to create value for customers today, um, it's also about asking what your impact on society is. It's not just about creating a good user interface. It's also about in the in the short and long run, how can you contribute to society? And then I'm not just talking about sustainability. I'm also talking about the social impact you have, but also right. about the the ethical standards. And in, I love that quote that you mentioned from Jurassic Park because we're growing up in a world right now where the mindset is if we if we can do it then we're gonna do it if we can someone if we can send someone to the moon we're gonna send them to the moon if we can reinvent dinosaurs we're probably gonna reinvent dinosaurs and have Jurassic Park uh, on the planet but indeed we need to think about should we do it uh, th think about the possibilities of VR and family members that passed away. Yeah. I, I recently saw a case study in South Korea where they had this, this lady and she went into a virtual reality world where she met up with her daughter, her seven-year-old daughter that passed away a few years before that. And they recreated that little girl's favorite playground. And then she came there and she was actually talking to, to her mother. And when you see those that video, you can watch that on YouTube. I mean, it 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 grabs you by the throat. It gives you goosebumps all over your body because I cannot imagine what that lady has to go through at that moment. But then the question is, is this a good or a bad thing? To be honest, I don't know. When my grandma passed away, they were married for 55 years, my grandma and grandpa. Mm -hmm. If she died, maybe it would have been a good thing for my grandpa that she would still be there virtually, or maybe it would be the worst thing in the world. I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that today in 2021, we can create a world where passed away people come back alive in a virtual reality setting, and it already looks kind of realistic. Just imagine what we will be able to do in 2030 or 2040. 
And I think we need to have that debate as organizations and actually really ask the question that you mentioned, should we do it? That question will become more and more important when technology becomes more and more powerful. Of course. And recognizing that anything that you do, any experience that you provide, what are the downstream effects from that? Are there real benefits from that experience? Is there real value from that experience? Or if you move beyond you know, that initial transaction of that experience, so to speak, what happens in the future because of that transaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the indirect effects that you are creating because yeah. of that transaction? It's not always that simple, but I think that discussion is needed if you have that customer-centric view. If you're looking at your customers as having a long-term relationship with them. And that's part of what you talk about in your book. So I want to jump into your book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. What if customers want more than excellent service? So tell yes. me, what, what prompted you to write this book? It's, it's my fifth book on, uh, on customer experience. And I, I had the feeling because of the, of the pandemic that we're moving into a new era of customer experience. So I tried to discover what could bring value to the modern customer. And I came up with a model with, with four layers. And I think each of those four layers bring value to today's customers. And, and the bottom layer is very simple. It's having a good product, good service, at a competitive price. That has been important since we started doing business with each other. And it's still important today, but it's a minimum demand. It becomes very difficult to positively differentiate yourself with with a product, but you need to have a good one, right? And then in 2020, we had the big digital jump forward. I tend to call 2020 the year of the biggest digital training course in human history. And it's it's crazy to see how fast we created new habits and new behaviors. And as a consequence, digital convenience has become a commodity. If you have it, fine. If you don't have it, you end up in deep trouble. So in other words, digital convenience has also become a minimum demand on top of having a good product, good price, good service. Right. You need that to stay in business, but you cannot positively use it anymore to win customers. It works negatively if you don't have it. And then the question rises, how can you positively differentiate yourself towards your customers? And then I added two dimensions on the model. First one is what I call partner in life. How can you change the life of your customers in a positive way? How can you facilitate them in achieving their dreams? How can you make sure that their fears are being stopped? And to succeed in that, the challenge or the goal or the quality that you need is to understand the human behind the customer. This is about creating a boost of empathy in your organization to understand that every customer has like a movie of their life in their head. And the better you understand that movie, the better you will be able to create value for them in their day-to-day life. So this is not about optimizing the customer journey anymore. This is about optimizing their life journey. This is not about you selling a product in an efficient way. This is about you adding value in the day-to-day life of customers. If you can do that, then you can really make a difference there. So that's one dimension, partner in life, where you can make a difference. Second dimension is what we briefly touched upon a few minutes uh, ago, 
how can you use your strengths to add value to society? How can you change your world? I don't think organizations need to change the world. I think organizations need to change their world. Everyone has strengths that they can put a leverage on to positively contribute to society. Because, you know, truth is there's there's a lot on our plate these days. We have um, the largest healthcare crisis of our generation with a devastating impact on many individuals and many businesses. We have a climate issue that becomes more and more urgent. We still have a fight against racism and discrimination. So there are a lot of global challenges um, that we're facing right now. And more and more customers look at organizations to become part of the solution. There's actually a higher level of trust in business leaders to deal with these challenges than with government leaders. And an organization that figures out how they can use their own strength to add value to society, at that moment, you are creating value for a big chunk of your customer base. And then you have four layers, um, the good product service price, digital convenience, partner in life, changing your world. And those four layers, if you manage to bring those together in one storyline, internally and externally, at that moment, you create an offer you can't refuse for your customers. There you go. That's it. But what's really interesting, and I don't think enough people understand this, is those two foundational levels that you talked about, having the quality product or service, having that digital convenience, those are no longer differentiators. Those are table stakes. Those are minimum requirements. Exactly. And and let's be honest, huh? I, I just put that on the table like it's extremely easy to succeed in that. But the truth is that many organizations don't achieve that minimum requirement. Huh? They They go underneath the bar instead of over the bar. And if, if we look back to the past 10 years, digital convenience was a differentiator. Companies like Uber and Airbnb and Amazon, and we all know the big names that became hugely successful in the past 10 years, they made a difference with digital convenience. But the truth is today, if we look to the homepage of our phone, and if we look at the apps we have on there, that's the kind of convenience level that we expect from every organization that we do business with. And that's still something that seems to be difficult to understand for many organizations. I still meet B2B companies that say, yeah, but I'm not WhatsApp and I'm not Netflix. No, you're not, but your customers use those platforms. And, and that's what, for in their eyes, in their perspective, is how interfaces should be built. So that's the same for a B2B company. So the benchmark, no matter which industry you're in, the benchmark is no longer your direct competitor. The benchmark are the apps that we have on the homepage of our phone. Yeah. So if I'm talking with you know, a bank or if I'm even talking with a photography shop, they need to understand that their customers are saying, if Uber can provide me this experience, why can't you? Exactly right. I want to dig back into your model a little bit. So we've established what those minimum requirements are, what those foundational pieces are. And granted, you're right. They're not easy to get, but you've got to have them. And so on top of that becomes the partner in life section. So let's talk more about that. I mean, okay. What does it really mean to be a partner in life versus how most companies are viewing transactions today? All right. Can, can I use a strange metaphor? Please. For that. Just And this is going to sound really strange, Matt, but you'll have to go with me in the flow for a few seconds. Just, just imagine that tomorrow morning, 
you wake up and you're no longer in your beautiful bed somewhere in Nashville, but you wake up and you look around and you think, oh my God, I have changed into a rhino. I don't know if you ever spent time thinking on that, that you would be a rhino tomorrow morning. I have not. Probably probably not. But do you know what your first concern would be as a rhino? Did you ever think about that? If you wake up tomorrow morning as a rhino, what would be your first concern? How do I keep my horn clean? That's a very uh, important one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, gosh. um, Honestly, if I didn't see them around me, I, I would think, where's my family? And are they rhinos too? Where's your family? Um, and of course, next to that, you would be hungry and thirsty, just like a human. And, yes. the good, and the good news is you can do that. You can find something to eat and drink. But the bad news is that horn you mentioned, that's a problem because you would also be concerned about your safety. And the truth is nature made a mistake. Nature assumed that a rhino would have no natural enemies because if a lion bumps into a rhino, a lion never attacks a rhino, right? A lion is like, okay, what are we gonna have for lunch? The rhino or the zebra, rhino, zebra, they always choose for the zebra. So nature thought, okay, they're good, no natural enemies, so we're not gonna give them all the premium functionalities. So they lowered their quality of sight and their their smelling capabilities. So they're not so good at that, rhinos. And because of that, they are an easy victim for poachers. And um, that's very dangerous. So you would be concerned about your safety. But there is good news. A rhino has a partner in life. On the back of the rhino, there are always little birds that travel along with the rhino. They're called oxpeckers, little oxpeckers. That's right. And they don't just eat the parasites from the back of the rhino. They also function as some sort of an alarm system because these birds, they have great eyesight and they they can spot humans from a far distance. And when they see humans, these birds make a different sound and the rhino recognizes that sound. And then the rhino is like, okay, there's a problem. There must be humans around. I have to get out of here. And then the rhino takes off. Yeah. Thanks for telling me, buddy. <laughs> but it's my pleasure. That's why I'm here. Yes. But, you know, why do I share this? Because in my opinion, that's exactly what a partner in life is all about. How can you be the oxpecker on the back of the rhino? Because if you think about it, the oxpeckers are always around without being intrusive. So the rhino doesn't feel that they're on his back, but they're always around. And they add value at the exact right moment when the rhino needs them. And that's, for me, the metaphor, what a partner in life is all about. It's about being around without being intrusive, but you add value at the exact right moment for them. So this is a story about empathy combined with timing. If you can combine those two, you can become a partner in life. And it's about understanding, the, as I mentioned, the human behind the customer. So if you're, if you're a car brand, it's probably not about selling cars anymore, but it's about being a partner in, in mobility services. If you own a gym, it's probably not about running a gym, but it's about being a partner in a healthy lifestyle. If you own student apartments and you want to rent them out, it's not about renting out apartments. It's about being a partner in the start of a successful career of young professionals. So it's a different perspective. You offer broader services and you do that in an empathic way and bringing those services to the customer at the exact right moment. That is for me what a partner in life is all about. Wow. 
I gotta say, you know, as as you were describing the rhino metaphor, like I kept thinking, I know he's got something here. I know he's going somewhere. I'm I'm, I'm ready for him to get there. And but yeah, like you you really brought it together. I love that metaphor. So that brings to mind the need for companies to have their perspective of who they are in relation to who their customer is and what their customers' needs are. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's about knowing who you are. It's knowing your strengths. And it's combining that with the insights that you can find about your customers. And, and that's a big challenge. Yeah? That, the, you know, asking the question, what, what kind of business are you in? What do you deliver? That's, that's for some organizations really difficult. I, I've been working a lot with Disney lately. And I'm a huge fan of Disney. So I, I am was, too. I was very happy <laughs> to, to work with them. And the question is, do they sell tickets for a theme park or do they sell memories? Uh, we, know, we know what the answer of the two is. Of course. But then the question is, how can you really get the insights that you need to make the right decisions? And I think, to be honest, in customer experience, we, we've been doing way too much traditional marketing research because it's very awkward what you do. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but in market research, and I've, I've done it myself, so I'm part of the problem. We, we bring a group of six or eight people together. We put them in a closed meeting room. There's like yes. a mirror in, in one of the walls. I've been behind, behind that mirror before. Yeah, I've been there too. So behind the mirror, we're, we're witnessing, we're, we're spying on them. And, and we have the feeling that we bring them in a natural setting to have a natural conversation. But for those customers, it must feel so awkward. It's like you're being interrogated by the FBI. I mean... You never speak freely when there's a big mirror in a room because you know that someone is watching you. So we bring people together in this artificial setting, and then we think that they will tell us the truth. I, I, I don't believe in that anymore. I think what we need to do is we need to go to the safari park instead of the zoo. You know, we, we, we used to bring people to the zoo. We lock them up, and then we watch them from a safe distance. Why don't we go on a safari and watch people what they really do? And if then you talk with young parents about going to Disneyland, going to Disney World, you will hear different things. Because in an awkward setting of focus groups, they will tell you, oh, I go to Disneyland because I love Space Mountain. I want to go on that ride. And, and they have a new ride. And I love that. And then the decision would be being Disneyland. Oh, we need to build new rides. That's what people want. But if you would go to the comfort of their own home, if you would watch them in the park, you would see that they don't go to Disneyland for the rides. They don't go to Disneyland for the parade. They go to Disneyland to create a fantastic memory with their family. They have pictures. There's so many people who have pictures of them with their children or grandchildren in their house with Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, or the Disneyland castle in the background. Yeah. And that is the main reason why so many young parents don't take their children to Disneyland when they're younger than six. And in the focus group, they will tell you, oh, it's because my children aren't ready yet and there are too many rides with height restrictions, so we don't go. The truth is they don't go because they are afraid that their children will not remember the experience and then the objective of creating a memory has failed. Right. And if you understand that, being Disneyland, you will take completely different decisions in your communication and your marketing than when you think that people just come for the ride and the parade. Of course. When you think about Disneyland specifically, Disneyland is not a low-cost memory maker. It's, exactly. it's pretty expensive. 
but it's absolutely worth it. And so I can see where these parents want to make sure that if I'm spending this much money and I'm trading that off, you know, for these memories, I want to make sure that my children are old enough to have those memories. Exactly. Exactly. And when you just look at the facts and the statistics, you oversee that. And in my opinion, this has been a major problem in many organizations. And and again, to become a partner in life, you need to have a deep understanding of your customers. And in many organizations, especially among senior leaders, I have seen so many moments of dehumanization of customers. And again, it's it's with traditional market research. Then you're in a meeting and they present some graphs and some statistics. And then they say, oh, 75% of our customers are happy. And then management is, okay, we've done a great job, guys. Uh, good work. <laughs> let's, let's all go home. And nothing changes. But when they have a neighborhood barbecue and one of the neighbors will tell them, hey, I used your app, but, you know, in all honesty... Um, it, it, it sucks. It's terrible. If I compare it with all the other things that I use, I don't, it's too complex. Right. And then they will go back to the office and this will be a major issue. Huh? When a neighbor of a CEO tells them during a barbecue that there's a big issue, that is an urgency that you create. Whereas a statistic of 1,000 customers presented to you in one graph doesn't have the same effect because it's dehumanized. And to have a deep understanding of customers, to become a partner in life, I invite everyone who is listening to figure out ways how they can get closer to the customer, how they have more situations of N is one, where they talk to one individual customer, where they observe one customer in their natural behavior. And that will help you to really create a different kind of understanding, which will result in becoming a better partner in life for your customers. It really will. There's so much value in that. And to your point, there's a big difference in saying, in showing a graph or showing analytics that say 75% of customers or 75% of users or 75% of account holders. You're right. That's dehumanizing when we've got to remember that every single customer is an actual human being. They're real people. And each one of them has their own, their own challenges, their own internal struggles. And it's difficult, but yeah, it helps to really talk with them one-on-one and understand what it is they're going through. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. It's, a, it's the secret to success. And, you know, we're, we're sometimes talking about big data. And it's crucial to have big data, but it's also really relevant to look at the small data and to really dive into individual use cases. Of course, but that's really difficult, especially if you've got thousands upon thousands or millions of customers. How can a company get better at talking to individual customers one-on-one and learning from them one-on-one? Well, most companies have a contact center. And there are a bunch of people there that are doing exactly that every single day. And most companies have salespeople or people in stores um, that are talking to customers, trying to convince them to buy the products. And you know what the crazy thing is, Matt? If you look to an organizational design, very often the lowest paid people are closest to the customer and the highest paid people are very far away from the customer. And the question is, is that a good thing? 
Uh, of course, people that, that work with customers are extremely motivated. That's not the problem. The problem is the people that are on top of the chain that think they are working on customer centricity when they're thinking about a new logo, whereas in fact, there may be much more important issues. So I invite every large organization to become part of the contact center or to take more responsibility. I've, I've done this experiment with a big European bank once. I had a big argument with their, with their senior leadership about this topic. And they said, yeah, well, what, what do you suggest? And I had this crazy idea. I said, why don't we create a list for each one of you? And there were like 10 people in the room. We'll, we'll create a list of 100 randomly selected customers. And from now on, you are their main contact. So if something is wrong, if they have a question, if they have a complaint, they will come to you and will not go to the contact center and you will be their first point of contact. And then we have 1,000 clients that will be in touch with the senior leadership and that will help you guys to better understand the kind of questions people have. It will help you understand what kind of issues are, are uh, happening in your organization. And we will not select the, the most important clients. We will make a random selection of clients. And I can tell you, Matt, that that created a shock in the organization because half of those guys were instantly against the idea. They were extremely afraid saying, yeah, but then I'm going to be disturbed. And what if they call me after hours? And suddenly it, they felt the pressure of what it meant that a client can actually reach out to you. And it, it took us months, but eventually they've done the job. Eventually, those 10 people had a list of 100 clients, and they were responsible for those 100 clients. And you know what happened? After a while, a lot of small details that were you know, hanging there somewhere in that organization that so many people from the contact center already mentioned to them and said, guys, this is a problem that comes back and back and back. Why don't we solve it? And it was never important. It got never on the IT development agenda because there were always other priorities. Well, suddenly, many of these frictions became a priority because those guys, the top executives, they became sick and tired of the fact that they had to reply to the same question over and over and over and over again. So they said, why don't we solve it? And then people said, well, we asked you three years ago. They said, oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's let's now yeah. solve it. So if you it's bring It's a priority people, now. <laughs> now it's a priority. So if you bring people directly to the end user, if you make sure that the feedback comes to them directly, it has a huge difference. It has a huge impact. I, I'm, I'm a soccer fan. I, uh, my favorite team is Club Bruges here in Belgium. Nice. And, and, and now we cannot go to the stadium because of COVID, right? Right. So we're watching the games from TV in an empty stadium. It's boring as hell. It's, it's not fun to watch. And you feel that the players have less energy. And I understand why. Because they lost the direct feedback from their customers, the audience. They used to live in a world... If they did something great, they got applause and cheered at. If they did something bad, they got booed at. And when, a, uh, when they score a goal, it's an explosion of emotions. So it's a profession where you have instant feedback from the customer on every detail that you do. And suddenly, from one day to another, that feedback just disappears. And you feel that the quality of the games is decreasing because of that. The energy is decreasing because of that. Well, that's exactly what is going on in many organizations for the people on top of the food chain. They don't get the oohs and the ahs directly from the audience. They get them indirectly in a dehumanized way. And you need to change that. You need to make sure that they get the oohs and the ahs directly because then some things that don't seem important to them today will suddenly become an urgency and it will help 
the rest of the organization tremendously to do a better job in helping customers. Right. And that's going to help them understand whether or not they're moving in the right direction. Exactly. Exactly. In your book, you say that excellent service is the new commodity. Mm -hmm. But to me, excellent can be different whether you're comparing excellent to your direct competitors or someone else. So how can companies understand what excellent really means to them? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Because a lot of people think that excellent means perfect. And that, that's not what I meant. Um, no. It, there, there is no such thing as perfect customer service or perfect customer experience. Um, many organizations have so many interactions with their customers that it's just impossible to be perfect. And customers don't expect you to be perfect. What it means is that people want to have a very positive intent if you show a positive intent and you show them that you care and that you have the intention to do a good job and to help them out, that's what people appreciate. And then they will forgive you your mistakes. They will understand that no one's perfect, but they know and they will feel that you have good intentions. That's what people expect. And that's how you make a difference. And that's how you create the perception of excellent customer service. And I think that ties back to one of the things you were mentioning earlier around empathy and timing. And if I understand what you're saying correctly, that shows a level of empathy toward the customer saying, we understand your needs, we understand your challenges and your struggles, and here's what we're doing to solve that. And that creates a mutual empathy relationship with the customer where they can look back to you as the company and say, oh, I understand what they're doing and I understand that they're, you know, that they have this intent to solve my problems or this intent to provide me this experience. And so I'm with them as they evolve. Exactly. And, you know, some companies are afraid of, of certain customers who, who bully on them and who threaten to give them bad reviews on, uh, on review sites. You know, if someone is being miserable as a customer towards your organization, there's a big chance that they have that same behavior towards other companies. And there's a big chance that they will have that same behavior towards their family and friends. And usually the credibility of that source is relatively low. It's like when, imagine when you're in an airport and, and something goes wrong with the client in front of you and you feel that the the, the employee from the airline is doing an outstanding job and is really trying to do whatever they can to help that client. But that client seems to be unreasonable. Right. If you're then waiting in line behind them, I don't know about you, but then I start to sympathize with that organization. Then I don't think like, hey, yeah, they're right. You should do a better job. No, then I'm like, come on, guys. Don't you feel that this is out of their hands and they've done everything they can? Now it's your turn to be you know, uh, empathic towards them. And, right. and that's the majority of your customers is like that. The majority of your customers will be empathic towards you if something goes wrong and they feel that positive intent. And then they will even turn against other customers that seem to be unreasonable in their point of view. I think so. And I will see that sometimes online or in social media where somebody may have a complaint and it's an unreasonable complaint. And then other customers may join in and kind of help set that complainer straight. Yep. But I think it really helps to have that from the majority of your customers when they recognize 
you as a partner in life with them. If it is just transactional, um, you're, you're, you're not going to have as loyal of a fan base like that. No, no, exactly right. It's, it's like if we go back to the model of, of uh, my story, uh, of the offer you can't refuse, you have those two right. layers, the minimum demand, good product, service, price, digital convenience. If you have that, that creates a very strong transactional relationship. But as you mentioned, it doesn't go beyond that. And when you succeed in becoming a partner in life, then you have a much stronger relationship. Then you have a more emotional one. And if you then feel that the company that is doing a good job in, in improving your quality of life is being attacked in an unreasonable way, then you will step up for them. If your relationship is just transactional, you will never do that. So you, it, it helps to, to have a, a community of fans. And it's, you know, in my opinion, loyalty has to start from the company and not from the customer. There are many organizations who think differently, who think, okay, you need to be very loyal to us and then eventually we will become loyal to you. I think it works in the opposite direction. And if you show your loyalty first, if you show that you really care, if you show that positive intent, at that moment, people will step up for you and they will become, they will reward you with their loyalty towards you at that moment. Absolutely. Well, and so one thing that I've heard you talk about, you, you talk about how companies can get brand experience and customer experience mixed up. Explain that for me. Yeah, there, there are a lot of companies who think that those are two different things huh? that say yeah, brand experience is about marketing communication and, and our logo and everything. And then you have customer experience that's that's uh, the contact center and when people are in touch with our digital channels. I think both are more than that. I think customer experience is the impression that you get from an organization every time you see or hear or experience something from them. Every time you touch the market, you're creating customer experience. If that's your app, your website, your social media, your product, uh, an employee that is misbehaving on public transportation, that's all customer experience. The amount of waste that you drop in the ocean, that's all customer experience because it touches the market and it, it creates a feeling and an emotion among a customer or a potential customer. And brand experience, that is selling the dream. That's sharing the story. That's telling the world, this is who we want to be. And customer experience has to deliver the evidence that what you sell in the dream is actually true over and over again. The consistent behavior that confirms the dream vision towards the customer. But there are no separate divisions. I think you need to bring them together. And I think you need to, do, to deliver both towards the customer. And that sounds obvious, but in many organizations, especially larger organizations, you have a team that deals with brand experience and you have a team that talks about customer experience and it seems like they have opposing interests which is not the case. They serve the same customer. One is sharing the dream. The other one is really making the dream concrete and very tangible for the audience, but they have to work together. They do. And there is a disconnect. A lot of times there's a disconnect between those organizations or between those that own what they call customer experience or those that own what they call brand experience. And sometimes, depending on the company or the size of the company, there's even other teams in between that that are even disconnected from both of those. Yeah, so, so how can leaders remove that disconnect? 
Yeah, it's it's something that I'm I'm very often confronted with. When I talk about my four layers of my model, you guys know them by now. I, I often have, have companies that tell me, oh, Stephen, that's great news because we're working on all four of those components. We have R&D working on new products. We have our digital team working on digital convenience. We have our CRM team trying to deepen customer relations. And we have some people working on sustainability. So it's great. We're doing all four. Why isn't it working? Usually then the conclusion is all four of those divisions are working separately and are completely disconnected. And towards the customer, it only works if you bring one storyline, if you win, bring one experience, that's when it becomes powerful. So connecting those four is crucial. How do you do that? I, I honestly think that's the responsibility of, of the really senior leadership team. They should bring the storyline, they should bring this together, and they should make sure that Everyone is working into the same direction. Very often, when I hear people trying to do that, they come with a purpose, a sentence that that they have that tries to unite the vision and that tries to unite the go goals. But the truth is, in many cases, the purpose is is a big disappointment because it's it's not differentiating enough between competitors. And because right. of that, no one in the organization, let alone outside of the organization, has a clue what the purpose is, and then it doesn't have any impact. Everything needs to be this one storyline in everything that you do. And to make that happen, I think you need to make it very tangible for every employee what their value is, what their contribution is to the success. Because in most of the cases, when you talk about a purpose and this one storyline, there's a big chunk of your employees that will say, whatever, huh? we'll, we'll see what they come yeah. up with next year because they are not connected to achieving that goal or to be part of that journey. And, and that's the secret of success, making it tangible for every single employee, how they can contribute. Look every single employee in the eye and make them part of that journey. And I think that that's something that a lot of leaders don't recognize yet. They don't see the value or they, they don't see the importance of making sure that every one of their employees, no matter what their role is, that they can see themselves in that purpose, that they can see themselves in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. They need to believe it. They need to breed it. They need to be that purpose. And very often it's the average of the average. And then you don't make a difference. Huh? You know, be, right. being average is a choice. You can, and that's some companies tell me, yeah, but we're a commodity. Everything that you talk about doesn't work for us. Being a commodity is a choice. It's something that you decide to be. It's not the market that tells you, you need to be a commodity. You need to be boring. You need to be non-differentiating. Every industry, every product line can be differentiating, can have a compelling storyline, but you just need the guts to speak it out and to convince everyone that this is the way forward. And when you've got that narrative saying, this is the way forward, then that goes back to anybody in that company that has that question of, can we do this? It reframes it to, should we do this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Beautifully said, Matt. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I want to make sure that we cover that top layer of the model, because I know that's really important too. And that's how do you add value to society? Explain that to me. How is that important? More and more people expect organizations to do that. Um, they want organizations to take their responsibility and make a difference. And it's a, it's a matter of really looking for a way that you can 
add value, how you can contribute to society in a way that it's connected to your business. I think that is crucial. I'm not a big believer in CSR. I'm not a big believer in organizations just donating money and believing that that is their purpose. It's it's great, of course, that they donate money, but usually the impact on the business is, is limited. Having yeah. an impact on the business by changing the world, the only way how to do that is to connect everything again. I, I've I've recently been invited to speak for uh, PPG, which is a B2B company. It's actually the largest producer of paint in the world. Right. And I was invited at their senior leadership um, conference in Miami just before the pandemic started. I, I was invited to give a presentation there. And I was really impressed with these guys. Huh? Their, their mission is to beautify the world. And I still remember this. I was uh, my, my keynote was planned in the afternoon and I was invited to join for lunch so that we could you know, talk a little bit. And I, I always dress very informal. So usually I wear a jeans and, and, a, and a shirt, something like that. So I came there and I know that usually I'm underdressed at these leadership events because everyone that's there is, is wearing the same kind of suits and, and you know how it works, right? Of course. And, uh, but that's how I, you stand out. That's your yeah, brand. That's, that's my brand. And then I came around the corner and I was all, I saw all these guys sitting there in their shorts and t-shirts. And I was like, okay, this is the first time that I'm, that I'm overdressed for one of these events. That was an awkward experience. So I went closer and I saw on their t-shirts that they had this, this, this logo that said the PP, PPG community. And I said, well, what is this? They said, well, this morning we went out to a school here in Miami and we painted the school. And I said, wow, that, that, as some sort of a team building for your leadership team. They said, no, 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 no. This is part of what we do. And then they told me this great story. They said, we know that there's so many buildings that add value to a community, schools, elderly homes, uh, places where children and, and teenagers can come together. And in many cases and many towns and cities, these buildings don't have the funds to, to make sure that they look beautiful and that they're always in good shape. So they specifically look for those kind of buildings all over the world, and then they identify them, and then they take a team of employees, and they go there, and they paint these buildings because they want to beautify the world. That's what they do. They make beautiful paint. They bring it to the market in a very innovative way, but they also want to contribute. And I love this because this is changing their world. They use their strengths. They use their mission to have a positive impact on society. And they paint more than 300 of those buildings a year now. And they really make a difference for many people. And, and that's what you need to look for. I think if you, if you figure out a way how to use your own power to bring value to society, that's the moment that it will have an impact on your employees. It will have an impact on your customers. And you will help people in the world uh, in your community by, by contributing that way. I love that story. And I see a lot of companies where they say, you know, to your point, we need to have a big CSR program. So what do we do? Well, let's donate money to these causes and these charities. Let's make sure that we push out uh, social media content, promoting these causes and promoting these charities. When, and I've seen this too, when you get a much bigger impact when you look at what your purpose is and what your strengths are and what your resources are and use those to make the difference in the world. And you're going to have a much stronger buy-in, a much stronger impact from your employees joining in on that when you use your own strengths. 
Yeah, exactly. And they will feel, feel part of that journey. They will feel, they will be proud huh? when when you come home after a hard day of, of work and, and you're having dinner with your family and they ask you, how's your day been? I mean, you're not going to talk about boring meetings and Excel sheets, yeah. but when you go out and you, you paint a school, you're going to talk about that. You're going to be proud. Of course. I love that. Well, Stephen, this has been fascinating. Um, I've, I've learned a lot from you. I've got one last question that I ask uh, most every guest. If okay. you were to create a five song soundtrack for your work, what songs would you include? <laughs> and do you need the, the explanation why or just the songs? I'd, I'd love an explanation too. <laughs> All right. Uh, first one is Viva La Vida from Coldplay. Oh, nice. That's because when I, when, I lo- when I launched my first book in 2010, that was a big hit. And yes. we used that music during my uh, book launch. Ah. And it, it still gives me goosebumps. It was one of the highlights in my professional career that moment. And I link that back to that song. So it still makes me happy every time that I hear it. Amazing. And then the second one is California Dreaming uh, from the Mamas and the Papas. Um, (laughs) Obvious choice. I I always dream about California. I see it as my second home. And I just love to spend time there. So I love that song as well. And you still have family there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I still have relatives there. I still see them. Yeah. Very often, at least a couple of times a year. I have two cousins there. And um, yeah, we're good buddies. I, I still have great memories from Excellent. them. And we still have great things that we do together. When there's not a global pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We were very excited because yesterday the European Union announced that as from this summer, uh, tourists from the United States will be welcome again in Europe uh, when they're vaccinated. So my that, entire right? family had, had their vaccines. So they're planning a trip to come back in September. So we're very excited about that. Oh, I'm sure you are. That, that'll be great to get together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can't, uh, can't wait. And then we have song number three. That's Don't Stop Believing from Journey. There um, you go. Great memories from that one. I love the lyrics. I, I love that sentence, Don't Stop Believing. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I do. I always dream about new things, and, and I always believe that it's going to be a positive uh, ending. I'm, I'm very, very optimistic. Uh, but it also reminds me to my trips. I, I used to organize inspiration trips before the pandemic. I took executives from Europe to Silicon Valley and to China and Singapore. And I had to, at a certain moment, I could take one of my favorite companies from Europe to Silicon Valley. It was a company called the Efteling. And it's a company from the Netherlands. It's actually a team park. It's one of the most successful team parks in in Europe. And I love those guys. They are amazing. And I could spend a week with them. And then I have this tradition when I'm in San Francisco with a group on the Thursday evening, the last evening that we're in the city, I take him to a dueling piano bar. Oh, fine. I, I, yeah, I love that. It reminds me of my student days and all my clients love it as well. And with that group, one of the first songs that we heard when we came into that bar was Don't Stop Believing from Journey. And it's also a group from San Francisco. So that's why they are on the list. That's right. I, I, I forgot their San Francisco connection. Yeah. And then maybe a strange one. Uh, tomorrow from the musical Annie. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I always look at tomorrow and I always, I have this, this belief that a lot of people don't have. I always have the belief that tomorrow will be better than yesterday. A lot of people think that, that now we live in terrible times and that it was a lot better 20 years ago and, and so on. 
I'm, I'm in the opposite camp. I really believe that the world is improving every single day and I cannot wait to see what's going to come next to us. Absolutely. And if you keep looking toward tomorrow and understanding what's coming up, what's coming up in the near future, you can prepare for that too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You, you're mentally ready for that. And then the last one I had to add a Disney song is a whole new world from Aladdin. Again, um, I, I, this, this is what I do for a profession. I, I bring people to a whole new world with my keynotes, with my books, my YouTube videos, or when I take them on a trip to China. For many people in, in the US and Europe, when we take them to China, it is a whole new world. It's completely different than what we used to. Uh, it's a little bit weird sometimes. Um, it's out of our comfort zone, but it creates inspiration and urgency to make a difference when we come back to our own countries. And, and that's what I like to do, show people a whole new world. Oh, definitely. And, and, and realizing, you know, like what, what they can do as part of that whole new world. Yep. Well, that, that is a really <laughs> eclectic mix. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. My now, pleasure. Steven, it, it, it was fun to think about that, actually. I, I love that question. Uh, you know, it, so, sometimes I'll do that just when I need a creative exercise. Like I'll think of a subject and think, okay, what can be a soundtrack for this particular subject? And it helps get my creative juices flowing. But cool Stephen... Stephen, we've learned a lot from you today, and I really appreciate it. But I know there's a whole lot more we can learn. Where can people go to learn more about you? Uh, they can go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash my name, Stephen Van Balligam. Yes. They can go to Instagram. I share a lot of content there. Um, I have my own website. It's just myname.com, stephenvanballingham.com. I have weekly blogs there about all the topics and the things that we talked about. I, I love sharing new things on those platforms. Yes. And I, I mean, my goodness, there's so many videos on your YouTube channel and I, I love your blog insights. Some of them go really deep. And then I think it's uh, once a week, you'll also share like really four quick, did you know, uh, yeah. trivia about customer experience. Those are fun too. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was a real pleasure to be on your show. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Stephen Van Belligam. So go and check out his book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. And you and your team can learn how to be a better partner with your customer and provide a customer-centric experience that's going to help both your customer and your business thrive. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes, like the next one featuring, well, it features something special and different that I'm going to try out. And I don't want to give it away just yet in case it actually doesn't work out. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get whatever I try as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.